my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friends, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking fact about... Radio Mysterioso. Hey, it's Radio Mysterioso here for the uh, 18th of January 2009. And, um, as promised, our guest today is Ray Stanford. Uh, Ray has been around the UFO scene for probably forever almost. <laughs> uh, uh, as far as most of the listeners of the show are concerned, certainly myself, before I was born, he started out in the 1950s uh, researching what was going on then, talking to researchers, some of the contactees, etc., and then broke away from that kind of activity and started taking the UFO subject seriously in, in the sense that he started a scientific study, he worked for NICAP for a while, we'll get into all of that on the show today, and... And more, actually, as uh, advertised. So, uh, Ray, can you hear me? I sure can. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on the show, and at a late time for you, because you're on the East Coast. No, no, it's not, not late for me. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, you Just after 11. It's okay. No problem. Well, you're a night person like me, I think, at least a uh, sort of night person. Right. Okay, uh, after that somewhat spotty introduction, I'd like to ask you first, actually... Since you've been around the uh, UFO scene for so long, what started you being interested in? You actually, you and your twin brother Rex were involved pretty heavily early on. Uh, actually, I was involved before he was. Uh, let me mention you, you said I worked, and I really didn't work for NICAP. I just investigated the Socorro case uh, oh, okay. for them uh, in 1964, but uh, and so a few reports. Of, photographic cases and things like that, but uh, I myself got interested, oh gosh, when I was, uh, well, I was nine years old, 1947, and um, I don't know why people do things like this, but a little skinny boy on a playground swing in 1947 in, in September, I jumped off the swing and, and ran over to the principal's wife, to whom I'd never spoken before. And I said, Mrs. Shelton, when I grow up, I'm going to find out what these flying saucers are. And when I find out, I'm going to tell the whole world. Well, she said not a word to the military about face and stomped off. Well, this about the best thing I could have done to uh, kneel my determination to <laughs> learn about what we then call the flying saucers. But it wasn't until, uh, well, I had decided they were Russian secret devices until I read Kehoe's first book. And that pretty well convinced me that we had visitors from somewhere else that they didn't originate on, on planet Earth. And uh, then, of course, I had no nowhere to go. And there wasn't a whole lot of, of good material out at that time. And uh, being a naive teenager, um, 
on uh, October fifteenth, nineteen fifty-three. I bought the cop- a copy of the newly published book "Flying Saucers Have Landed" by George Adamski and Desmond Leslie. And uh, uh, being a bit wide-eyed as a teenager, I was initially really taken in by the the Adamski thing. And uh, but as uh, as the years went by in my teens. Uh, I grew out of that. Uh, it helped the fact that uh, Adamski really uh, liked my my brother and I, and uh, uh, I think that he saw in us that, that we were young people that he really didn't want to ruin our lives with the the hoaxes that he was publishing. And so one morning, over after about his third or fourth cup of eggnog at his place uh, <laughs> up on the slopes of Palomar Mountain, he um, he told us that um, he wouldn't have gotten into and this is a quote all this saucer crap. Uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that uh, a prohibition business he had going on was knocked out when prohibition was uh, <laughs> was removed, and uh, he took us down to what he called his workshop and, and showed us uh, how he faked uh, the mothership photographs and uh, told us about his abilities with the airbrush as well as with the paintbrush, and um, we appreciated it because we were then able to get completely out of that uh, that mode of, of thinking. And uh, I realized I had to do something meaningful uh, in ufology, and the tales told in the night, like a damsky, just were, were, were his head. And I decided, even then, although I couldn't afford it at the time, to try to begin with cameras and then get other instruments to uh, to record uh, evidence that would uh, be useful to science. So that's where I have uh, been traveling that road uh, since then. Interesting, because I've heard that story about Adamski for a long time. And I didn't know where the quote come, came from. I guess it came from you and some of your writings. Where, did you write about that somewhere, like maybe in your first book that you wrote with your brother called Look Up? Uh, no, you mean about uh, Damsky confessing to us? Yeah. No, no, we didn't. Uh, we were told believers at that time. It was because that, that was published in 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 fifty seven, and uh, was written in uh, fifty six. And uh, it wasn't until I think it was fifty eight when Adamski, uh, uh told us what had been really going on. We had visited him several times, and he got to rather like us, I think, and, and so he, he told us that, and I, I was ever grateful. We also were very instrumental in exposing uh, uh, the late Daniel W. Fry and his claims. Uh, uh, I came across, I got evidence that I, I won't go into unless you want me to, but uh, yes. it was strong enough that it, um, it uh, convinced his, uh, his wife, Elma, uh, what she had suspicioned for years that his photographs were hoaxes and his claims were hoaxes. And uh, so she finally divorced him after we were there and, and showed her evidence right in his own uh, movie, one of his movie films, that it was complete fake. What do you think moved uh, Adamski to tell you these things and not think that the secret would get out with you? Know, Adamski, uh, you know, when we say that, you know, he was a hoaxer, uh, and so on, uh, you know, you may sound like he's all bad, but Adamski was not all bad. He had, uh, some goodness in him, and, uh, uh, despite that, and, uh, from the, it's interesting, from my very first correspondence with him, in, uh, which was, I think, in 1954, um, I think he sensed that, uh, that, uh, I was inclined to lean toward uh, interest in psychic things, and it may be uh, the idea of telepathically communicating with uh, extraterrestrials and so on. And he kept in his letters encouraging me, saying, "Great, keep this on the physical level. Don't 
don't get into all this psychic stuff that is in his letters to me. And uh, finally, after we'd visited several times there, I guess my first visit was in the summer, yes, of 1956. But it wasn't until a couple of years later that uh, he finally came across and uh, and told us uh, that he had, uh, well, he said, um, uh, would you like me to give to give a verbatim full statement of what he initially told us there with under the influence I think of eggnog that morning. Yeah, we we have we have two hours. I, I would like to get every detail from you that uh, you can provide because it's it's on the okay. record and people well, want to hear. Well, let me remind people that the Damsky was brought over to the U.S. by his mother when he was age two, but he still had a very thick Polish accent, and uh, I remember it's as if I'm standing uh, there right listening to him to this day. He said. Uh, Hell, you boys, you don't know what a SOB that man Roosevelt was. He was referring, I guess, to uh, Roosevelt that knocked out the prohibition. He said, uh, I had uh, the Royal Order of Tibet. Maybe it was sacred. I don't remember which word it was. But it's Royal Order of Tibet. He said, I had the biggest bootlegging business in Southern California. Hell, that man Roosevelt come along and knock out the prohibition. Uh, I was the biggest bootlegger in Southern California. And I wouldn't have to get into all this saucy crap if it hadn't been for that man Roosevelt. <laughs> and then very shortly, he took us down to his workshop and showed us uh, where he, uh, well, we, it was down in front of the the, uh, the the dining area there of the house where he and, and uh, Alice Gay Wells, Lucy McGinnis lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, in front of it toward the highway was elevated, and there was a space under it that uh, had a door, and he opened up, and it was what he called his workshop. And uh, we he opened the door, and uh, uh, here, hanging on black, very narrow uh, things that I think were very nylon uh, carded and painted black were uh, little tiny flying saucers, <laughs> and they were coated with something that uh, uh, when he uh, began to draw the door closed, you could see that were glowing. And uh, but he flipped on the light, and here to the left of the door was a big, thick container with a radioactivity symbol on it. It's a danger radioactivity, and. Uh, uh, much to my terror, he used a screwdriver and pried open the lid. It was a lead, it was actually lead coated. And, um, I presume, I don't know, I guess it was radium. And, uh, yeah, radium he pried paint. the top off of it and it was glowing so much that I dashed about two feet back from it. And I said, Prof, close that up. People called him Prof. Uh, close that thing up. That's dangerous. And, uh, so anyway, he explains he had, you know, painted these things and, and you close the door, and here is the whole formation of of the flying disc that you see around the mothership uh, in his his mothership picture. And he had used a, a black uh, cutout mounted on the the uh, wall behind it with uh, light enough to silhouette it, and thus it showed when he took pictures. It showed these the little flying saucers hovering around uh, the uh, the thing. It. Uh, it was quite the revelation to us, but um, and you know, and, and a disappointment because we really had wanted to believe uh, his information about the Space Brothers, uh, who were concerned about this world. But it turns out uh, it was strictly as he said. And he, he told me to go down uh, up the hill to the uh, to the office and get the book Pioneers of Space, which had been published uh, oh back I think in the thirties or the forties, uh, right. and. Uh, uh, although I understand it was actually ghostwritten by another person, Adamski had provided the basic ideas and it had in it from way back then basically the same, uh, approximately the same accounts of going aboard a disc and motherships and things and talking to uh, Nordic type uh, 
alien visitors uh, way back then. So he's saying he told us that he said I you know I picked up all of this psychically. He said he he said he got it psychically and he never had to have any physical contact with them to know this stuff. You see, he says I wrote it back then, and so you know I I, I you know he got decided to get into the saucer business and make a little money off of it by by pretending it was a, a physical thing. It's funny that he showed you all this stuff. Were uh, Alice Wells and Lucy McGinnis aware of this at the time? Uh, well, she was. She was there. She had, she had made him the egg knife, but you know she didn't go downstairs with us. I don't know if she if she knew I was down there or not. I, I never questioned Alice about it. Lucy wasn't in the in the the house when he did that. I think she was up in in the uh, the office up the hill. Oh, okay. Because I've been to that place. It's called the Oak Knoll Campground right now, and they've actually found found some of the artifacts from the time. Including the yeah, well, uh, sign. Yeah, uh, by the way, uh, another interesting episode. Uh, we had driven in from Texas, and we got in there after eleven o'clock at night. And uh, and uh, Adamski and the two ladies there were uh, were in bed, but they heard us drive up, and so Lucy uh, McGinnis came to the door, and uh, then she recognized us, and she said, "Well, you boys are going to have to to go down the valley somewhere and, and find a, a motel." Uh, tonight, uh, we don't have a place for you to sleep here. And Damsky then got up and came to the door, and he said, he said, hell no, Lucy, the boys can stay here and up in the office tonight. And so they let us put down sleeping bags, and we slept up in the office. And uh, <laughs> But before we did, he, he, he invited us in the house, and we sat there with, with uh, him and, and Lucy and uh, Alice, and uh, uh, he said, oh, you boys, you should have been up there the other day. Oh, there was a mothership. She was so big. Oh, it was huge. Mr. and Mrs. Black from San Diego, they were here. Lucy and Alice, they saw it. Hell, that's the closest I've ever been to one of them things. Oh, well, I mean, excepting when I've been inside. <laughs> well, did uh, Lucy and McGinnis and Alice Wells actually confirm this? Did they see the same things? Oh, yeah, yeah, they saw it. I mean, it was, I don't know what it was. It could have been a, a lenticular cloud over the mountain. I, I don't know if it was, you know... Because they didn't go into much detail, they just said it was. He said it was. Oh hell, it was biggest the side of a house, is what he said. <laughs> Did you have any interaction with other contactees like uh, George Hunt Williamson? And I, I see yes, you talked yes, about indeed, Dan Fry. I, I did. I had extensive contact with uh, Rick Williamson, as he's called. Right. I was called, and uh, of course, I had rather extensive contact with Dan, Daniel W. Fry. And let me explain about Fry. Uh, uh, he had the organization called Understanding. And uh, I was out there uh, talking uh, about my experiences with UFOs and, and showing up a movie film that we'd gotten in 1956. Nothing spectacular compared to the stuff we've been getting. But but uh, uh, one day, uh, Elma, his wife, uh, it was after he had left for work in the morning, she said, you know, I'm concerned about some things that... Uh, that Dan has been up to, and I, I, I want to get you boys' reaction to this. And uh, he told us a strange story. He said uh, he and uh, uh, and she had gone out to uh, Yucca Valley, uh, or uh, yeah, Yucca Valley, uh, where uh, a, a lady named Doris Levesque, who claimed to channel space beings, was. They went out to visit her one night, and uh, she said uh, uh, that Dan after they'd been there for about an hour, said, well, he wanted to go outside and, and have a smoke. So um, I believe it was a smoke. Anyway, he had to go outside for some reason, he said. And uh, when he came back in, he was out there for about, uh, she said, 20, 25 minutes. And uh, 
Uh, he had had a box in the back of the car. She didn't know what was in it, but uh, he came back and he said not a word about anything happening. And a few days later, he came home and threw a packet of, of photographs processed on the uh, uh, table, the coffee table, and uh, and uh, she opened them up and looked at them, and here was pictures of a of a glowing desk at night. And she said, Dan, where did you get these? And he said, well, you remember when we were at Doris Levesque's? He said, uh, when I went outside, there was a spaceship out there, and I took pictures of it. Now, <laughs> he didn't call them. She said, Ray, he wasn't even excited. He said, yeah. uh, I, I found it highly suspicious uh-huh. that he had seen this and got the photographs, and and we had not been told anything, even when he came back inside after allegedly seeing it and photographing it. And uh, then she talked about other cases where similar things, and uh, she told us about how one time during one of George Van Tassel's spacecraft conventions at Giant Rock, uh, he had brought a box, and he told her not to get inside this box or anything, that he had some camera equipment he didn't want exposed to light. That's what he had told her, to keep her out of the box. And uh, uh, while that, the convention was going on, he came up to her, and he, he said, uh, he said, uh, I, I've got to go, I'm going I'm to go around the mountain here, uh, Said you know the the porta cans are they were too busy a portable toilet out there or two and uh, he said I'm going around the mountain go to the bathroom <laughs> well he went around the mountain and or over the mountain and uh, he came back on foot with his box and uh, he had taken a camera with him and uh, he said nothing to her at all about anything strange happening and uh, about a week or so later he. Uh, it, in the mail there came, or, or else he brought in a lay on the table, I don't remember which again, a, a processed roll of uh, a movie film. And uh, when he got home, she asked him about it. Uh, well, I think it was already home. I mean, he put it there himself. He, uh, maybe he picked it up in the photos. I don't remember. It's been so many years. But anyway, uh, he said, well, he said, I didn't tell you when we were out of the spacecraft convention, but I saw a spaceship when I went on the other side of the mountain. And, uh, and I... Um, well, I, 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 photo, I filmed it. I took a movie of it. And she said, well, let's see it. So he projected this thing far. And when he was projecting it, she said, I thought it was odd. She said, he stepped the, the projector at the highest speed. She said, I <laughs> wanted to, you know, to see the details. And he said, it's, you know, just so fast. He said, I've never seen him do anything like that before. She said, is there any reason he would do that? I said, yeah. I said, there are all kinds of reasons. There may be flaws in it. If it's as you seem to suspicion a fake, that would show up too easily if it were slowed down. I said, well, he's at work. The film's here. Let me project it, and we'll slow it down to the slowest speed, and we'll stop frame it and see what's there. Sure enough, it's the, it's the one where he has a uh, thing that looks like a not really convex disc, but uh, two cones, one on each side, truncated cones. Well, they kind of come together with low cones, let's put it, and it has the black and white panels on the top and bottom. When you slow it down, one thing you can see that the panels are made out of tissue paper, and you can see them flopping back and forth in the wind. <laughs> but that's not all. Uh, at one point, the the line he was holding on—I don't know if it was you know nylon, uh, uh, like you lo- use on a fish leader when you're fishing, or or what it was—but uh, it slipped out of his hand momentarily, and the the craft fell down, and he grabs it and yanks it up. When he does, there are a few frames there where you can see the entire wire. That he had, or, or nylon thing that he had, to, it, it reflects the light, and you see it as it's, it, he grabs it and yanks it and pulls it back up. And I almost said, "My gosh!" She said, "That is a fake. That, that, that's just a model." And the thing I can. Say. So that night, uh, I was having my going to be having my talk at one of the units of understanding, and I, what I did was I, 
uh, after I got to showing my film, I said, and you know, Alma showed me today a movie that Dan took out at the, at the last spacecraft convention. It's really interesting. I want to show it to you. And uh, I went over to the projector, and I had my brother sit down there, and I said, Rex, be sure run it at the slowest speed. <laughs> and so he flipped it over to the slow speed, and Dan was sitting there, and I saw him break out in a sweat, and momentarily he jumped up and ran over and said, you can't run that at slow speed, it'll damage the film. You have to run it at the maximum speed to keep from damaging this important film. I said, wait, Dan, you've got the wrong idea. When you run a film fast at maximum speed, that's not it's even ordinary speed, I said, you risk tearing this film up. I want these people to see this important film at minimum speed, and oh boy, he started sweating. I said, Dan, just sit down. Let me take care of it. He did. Well, it was very obvious. You could see the tissue paper flapping in the wind. You could see the, the wire or nylon cord when he when he dropped it. And uh, there were some people, I won't call their names, that uh, man and his wife were there that were pretty good financiers of, of his organization. And uh, Dan was sitting behind his book table uh, as people were filing out. And uh, this one fellow, his name was uh, Harry, and he, he said, he said, Dan, you know, if I didn't know you so well, I would swear that film that was shown tonight is a fake. It was made out, <laughs> the model was made out of the size of it, out of tissue paper, and that I saw a wire or a nylon thing that uh, that it dropped out of your hand and you yanked it. And Dan just he, he shrugged his shoulders and said, Well, like I say, I don't know what these things are. I don't know what it was. I saw and his shoulders just jerking up and down, as he often did when when Dan started lying. He had, he had this tick of his shoulders when he would really start. Uh, a lie that was really, I guess, bothering him. And so these people were greatly uh, shaken in their, their faith, as a lot of people were, except the true believers that, you know, they regarded him with religious, uh, yeah. uh, you know, just religious feelings. You once told me a uh, story about Williamson, which I don't know if you wanted to repeat on the air, about staying well, at his house. Uh, yeah, he, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it, uh, I mean, it, it gets pretty base. Uh, he he was a person that uh, that uh, well. I'll, I'll let me say this initially that uh, uh, twice when he was having books published by uh, uh, the publisher in England that, that published uh, Neville uh, Spearman, line, I think, and, and wrote in the sky. Yeah, maybe Spearman, Lord Schumann. I'm not sure who it was. Uh, he he took advance orders as he went around the country lecturing, uh, claiming that he was the head of the Andean Amazonian Survey, and uh, he and John McCoy went around the country in uniforms that were as phony as an $8 bill because there there was no Andean Amazonian Survey was trying to impress people, and he took advance orders on these books. And uh, later on, when I had been around the country talking on UFOs, again and again, in many parts of the country, people came to me and said, you know, they never got the books. They paid for the books, but they never got them. Uh -huh. And uh, I later learned that he never never sent books to anybody. He just used the money, and that was it. <laughs> yeah, I, and, uh, I, go ahead. Yeah, well, uh, I, will, I will say this, uh, and you know, people take it for what it's worth. Uh, I was a, a real believer in, in the Damsky, you know, in 1956 when I got out of high school, because this thing with the Damsky, his confessions had not occurred yet, and, and so I believed Rick Williamson, too. And uh, I took a bus from uh, where I lived in Corpus Christi, Texas, out to Prescott, Arizona, because uh, I knew that there was a job coming open at the, the little newspaper there in Prescott, Havasu County, Havasu Pie County News, and uh, I would be able to get a job there. And uh, so the first night while I was in town, uh, Rick and his wife Betty invited me to come to their place and spend the night there. And uh, 
later I, uh, after that I got a place to stay, which I would have even if they hadn't helped set it up. Because uh-huh. uh, we had a good vegetarian dinner that Betty had prepared, and uh, and uh, when it came bedtime, uh, Rick said, "Well, you know, he pulled out the the studio couch, folded it out, you know, where it made a, a, a wide bed." And, uh, you know, uh, you know, the back is lying down as well as the, the seat part. Mm-hmm. And um, when it came time to go to bed, uh, much to my shock, uh, Rick came in and jumped in bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here I was, a you know, a high school, you know, just out of high school, you know, 18 years old. And, and, uh, and uh, I go, what in the world is this? You know, thirty-three or whatever the old man he was. Uh, he had a he had a young child there and, and wife. And what what's he crawling in bed with me for? Well, I found out pretty soon he started snuggling up to me. And I said, "Look, I said I have got to go to sleep. I said I have been on that bus all the way to Texas, couldn't sleep. And uh, I said, you know, so I, I don't feel good you being so near me. And so he, he moved over, and didn't try anything, but I, I I could tell what was on his mind." And uh, this was confirmed about two years later when he was traveling around the country lecturing. And the uh, person that was with him uh, told me about how I won't even name the state for fear of I don't, I don't want to cause anybody embarrassment. But uh, in one of the, the places where he was uh, lecturing, um, the uh, he told there was two young boys there in the in the household, and. Uh, he got to talking to them uh, when he and the other guy were there and telling them that uh, that he is an alien soul. Of course, he claimed to be, as you may know, he claimed to be the reincarnation of first of Hermes Mercury, the space god from Venus, uh, or from Mercury or wherever, and uh, and that he claimed he claimed to be the reincarnation of, of course, Mark the Apostle and the Doge of Venice and, uh, and let's see, and, uh, of course, uh, Atahualpa, the uh, last uh, Incan... Uh, 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 leader, and um, I forget who else, but uh, but any, anyway, he told them that as an alien soul, that he had to balance his uh, his polarities by having sex with uh, young boys who had enough power that they would keep him from becoming feminine and to balance him out. And uh, he had sexual relationships with both of those boys all night long, and this other guy said that he <laughs> almost threw up repeatedly and he was tempted you know to go alert the parents but for some reason i think he was totally under the spell of rick williamson he didn't and this is the truth or i wouldn't be telling it i have no no vested interest at all rick also told me that he did not that he was felt quite certain that adamski did not encounter any uh scout ship out on the desert that they never saw anything resembling a scout ship that adamski had taken in the 1940 Ford or Mercury, I think it was a Ford that, that, that they'd driven out and he'd taken a box like Dan Fry did. Yeah. He told, said nobody was to get into it. And he took it with him, uh, along with his camera, out uh, when he told him that the, 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 the Space Brother was out there waiting for him. Yeah. Well, let me, let me explain the background on that. Please. The Sunday before, Rick Williamson, Betty Williamson, and uh, the, uh, the other couple from up there in Winslow, uh, that uh, are, are mentioned in, in Saucer Speak. I forget their names, but uh, they were at Adamski's, and uh, uh, Adamski went into his so-called trance, and uh, he began to channel what was supposed to be his uh, Tibetan master. And uh, the Tibetan master said that uh, 
that Williamson was to get plaster Paris, and they were, you know, they were going to rendezvous, uh, and they were going to go out there to the desert, and that Rick would have plaster Paris because the uh, the Venusian would leave footprints on the desert, for, and uh, so he would cast them. Now, in the book you read it, it sounds like Rick Williamson was an anthropologist, and, uh, uh, and that he uh, just happened to have plaster Paris along, which is utterly ridiculous. Uh, uh, frankly, and uh, Rick was not an anthropologist. Contrary to what he claimed, he had no no uh, degrees at all, no academic degrees at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but but anyway, uh, he said that Dansky took that box with him, and he believed that Dansky had the scout ship model in the box, and uh, you know took pictures of it while he was out there. And he said, as far as the so-called mothership that came over, he said all he could say is it was, you know, something long, reflecting light. He said there was an orange area at one part of the body. He said it could have been, you know, an orange-painted wing on an airliner. He said he didn't know. But he said he really didn't feel that there was any contact went on. Well, when uh, uh, Adansky gave him the pictures he had taken there and told him to take them to the Phoenix Gazette and uh, and let them process them and... Uh, they would tell them that they, the contact had been established with the uh, Venusians. And so uh, Rick took them, uh, Dansky, of course, went on back to California. Rick took them to Phoenix. And uh, the uh, was it the Phoenix Gazette? Or was it, it was one of the two Phoenix papers, anyway. And uh, he took them down there, and they processed them. And Rick said that it was absolutely embarrassing. He said it was the most obviously phony photographs. So Rick got on the phone and called prof, as he said, George Adamski, and told him, he said, look, these things are embarrassing. I mean, they look absolutely fake, prof. Uh, what should I do with them? Uh, and prof said, burn them. <laughs> said, burn them? You have pictures of, of Illusion spacecraft and you burn them? He said, oh, hell yes. He said, it'll be easy to get some more. And I know the space brothers are coming back. They will give me some more chance to take the pictures of them. And so he burned <laughs> them. Nobody will ever see them again because they were burned. It must and, have been uh, a... Oh, Rick ahead. told me all that, and I, I had plenty of time of contact with Rick Williamson. I, I was in Peru in 1957 in January, early February when uh, when Rick was down there and uh, I, I knew him quite well and I wouldn't say these things if they weren't true. They're absolutely true. It must have been another role that he took where they took pictures of uh, them taking the casts and all that uh, because those those were printed in um, Saucers of Landed. Uh, yeah, right, right. Uh, the uh, I, In fact, I saw some of the, the plaster casts that uh, Damsky had up at his place in a, a clear plastic dome over yeah. them and so on. And Rick said that the box he had was plenty big to have had something, you know, to attach on the bottom of shoes and put on his shoes and, and walk around and make these uh, make these uh, imprints in the, the soil. He said it was imprints with air. He, he made the cast himself. But uh, it had all been told beforehand with Adamski's channeling uh, the, the Sunday before. You know what? You talk about uh, Williamson and Dan Fry and Adamski, and I was wondering, do you think there are any of these, the, any of the contactees in the 1950s actually believed their stories and weren't really, because it sounds like these people all knew exactly what they're doing and what, you know, the hoaxes they were perpetrating. Yes, they did. Uh, there may have been one, and, and to tell you the truth, when I say this, anybody that's out there that's knowledgeable will probably laugh. But if there was one of them, and I, if there was one, there was only one of the contactees that were, were uh, honest. And if it was, it would be the, the least credible one in most people's mind. I didn't even believe this in my naive teens when I believed Damsky. I never did believe Dan Fry, but uh, something had just told me along that he was not on the level. But uh, that particular person would be Truman Betra. 
Really? Yes. Now let me tell you why. I would not be saying this. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have thought there was a possibility it was real if uh, the following thing had not happened to me. I was living in Phoenix, uh, and uh, I was one day. I was in, in a camera store. I had been on a, a trip to the Middle East, and I was there to pick up a whole bunch of rolls of film that I had taken on this trip to the Middle East, and. Uh, there was a, a lady in there, and she looked at me, and she said, You are Arab. Well, of course, I'm not an Arab, but he said, she said, You are Arab. I said, What in the world are you talking about? I, you know, I'm from Texas. <laughs> and uh, she said, No. She said, My husband is a, is a famous artist, and he has an art school, and his name is Jay Davis. And he's well-known. You've seen his reproductions, I'm sure, in Arizona. His paintings, the reproductions of his paintings in Arizona highways at times. And, and he has an art school, and tonight he needs a model. Someone that 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 I had a, I had a beard and a mustache at that time, and and you know he wants somebody that can put a turban on and it'll look like he's probably a, you know a, a an Arabian. Yeah. And she said, "You're the perfect one. Would you be willing to do it? We'll pay you." And I said, "Sure." In first place, I was an artist. I was painting, and so I uh, thought it would be fun to meet this famous artist. And uh, so I, I went over there and. Uh, and they they really liked me, and, and uh, Jay and his people there all tried to paint me with a turban on. I didn't end up with any of the paintings for it, and I'd like to have the one that, that Jay did. But in any case, he said, look, he said, you're a painter. He said, I'm painting a gigantic mural that's going to go to the head of the swimming pool at a big house that's being built on Camelback Mountain. He said it shows uh, uh, the, the forest, and it's going to have the forest and a, a stream flowing through, and it will come down to the bottom right of it, and literally a waterfall will come out of there, literally, and water will come out of it and go right into the swimming pool and will be recycled. And they said, you know, it's like you're in a forest and natural spring is feeding the swimming pool. Uh -huh. And uh, so he said, I will need somebody to help me in painting this. And he said, I'll be willing to pay you such as I think it was by the hour or something. I'm not sure. So one day uh, I was working with him painting this big, huge mural that was taken down and put uh, here to a wall in this beautiful house of some builder, I think, had, had contracted this house. It was his own private house. And Jay said to me, he said, uh, you know, you're into this field so much, Ray. He said, what do you think about Truman Bedroom? And I said, well, it's ridiculous. I mean, uh, you know, he claimed to met a, a 300-foot diameter spaceship. He claimed that the female captain of it called the Admiral Scow, and that there was a 32-member male crew, and, and uh that uh, all she would tell him about where they came from if it was behind the moon, or uh, which I prefer to believe that if it was true that she was beyond the moon. And uh, I said, I don't believe it. And he said, well, let me tell you something. You may believe it. He said, uh, I have a friend that uh, that uh, in the time period when, uh, uh, well, Bathroom was living up in, in Prescott, Arizona. And at the time, this fellow uh, who, had, who had subsequently moved down to Phoenix and had become uh, either the president or the vice president of a bank there, um, but uh, he was independently wealthy to start with. And but he was he enjoyed doing jewelry. He had a, a jewelry shop in Prescott, and uh, the uh, this guy one day, and you know everybody in Prescott knew that Truman Bathroom uh, uh, claimed contact with this woman. I mean his wife was very upset, claimed that uh, she claimed alienation of affections by our range, which yeah. Bathroom said was the name of this. <laughs> Alien Great woman, phrase. And then successfully divorced him on that basis. And anyway, she said that Truman was, uh, 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 he, well, he, he, he said that you know, he knew about Truman's bathroom, but he didn't think of it when one day he said a beautiful little lady walked into his shop. Now, he described her. 
and she was exactly the way Bethlehem described, the same red and black clothing with a pleated skirt, and she was the same height, and he said that he didn't, you know, he didn't, had never paid any attention to the town's knowledge, really, of, of Truman Bethlehem, except she, he merely did it there in the background. But he saw this little lady walk in, didn't think about Truman Bethlehem or his claims, but he looked at her and he said to himself, God, is she out of this world? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she said, she said, look, I want to, I know you're good at, at gold work. She said, I'd like to ask you to make for me a memento for a very dear friend. I'm going to have to leave, and I'm going very far away, and he may never see me again. But I want you to make a little desk that can hang on a, a chain over, you know, on his chest, and it will be made of gold, and you will show a human hand. Now, believe it or not, this hand is, is facing you. It's the Boy Scout symbol with the three fingers up and the little finger and the thumb together. Yeah. The Boy Scout symbol. And uh, it was to be in the middle of this, in you know, three-dimensionally, uh, whatever you call that. And, and yeah. he said, well, look, I can make that out of lost wax and, and cast it, you know. You know, you put a mole around and cast it centripetally, and, and I can, I know I can do a good job. And she said, look, I know you're a good man, and I know you'll do a good job, and I know you're honest. She said, so I'm going to pay you right now for this. And she just gave him cash, and she said, when, when, when you're, you're done with it, she said, I want you to just drop it off at the desk at the motel where I'm staying. She gave him the name of the motel, and uh, he did it. And he said that when he was making the, uh, the wax, the lost, the, using the wax to make the, the thing to make the lost wax casting from, he made an accident in the palm when he was working on lines in the palm. He made a scratch he didn't intend to make, but it was minor, and you know he didn't want to mess up what he had done by trying to to change that. So he, he left it, and uh, and that was it. Now he, he did it, and he took it by and uh, and and left it for her. Well, he thought nothing about it until. Several years later, he had he had moved down to Phoenix and had, had gone to work with this bank. And he was at a civics club meeting. And this guy did not believe in UFOs at all. He said that he absolutely, and he said to this day, he says, I can, I can take you to meet him if you want to meet him. He doesn't believe in any flying saucers except the Admiral Scow. <laughs> and I said, what, what, what is this? He said, well, he was at the civics club meeting. They said, today we have a gentleman, Truman Bathroom. Claims and you know they they mentioned what Bethlehem claimed and said now we'd like to introduce you to Truman Bethlehem who's had a truly out of this world experience. So Bethlehem got and this guy he said he was laughing he said he thought he was going to fall out of the seat he said he didn't even try to control it he was laughing out loud and uh, you know it's so ridiculous and uh, he said boy toward the end of the talk Bethlehem got a very serious look on his face and he said and Ara he said uh, the last time I saw her. And I have a feeling I may never see her again. But she left me a precious memento of a gold disc with a symbol on it that she said is a symbol of unity between us and, and our me and, and, and her and her civilization. And uh, he said it, it's it's a it's a hand with a symbol that looks like the Boy Scout symbol. And this guy thought, Oh my God. That woman he described is the woman that came in my shop. And so he, he said he broke out in the cold sweat because he had not believed anything. And so he waited until the people had gone. He said, Mr. Bethlehem, please wait. I have to talk to you afterward, before after everybody's gone. And he said, Mr. Bethlehem, could you show, are you wearing that gold memento? And he said, yes, I am. He pulled it out of his shirt 
and he said it was the one I made. He said it even had a little flaw in the palm of the hand. He said, he said, and I then remembered how I had said to myself, gosh, that little woman is out of this world. <laughs> and he said, I, he said, so Jay, he's telling Jay Davis, the famous artist, he said, Jay, I don't believe in UFOs, but I believe only in the Admiral Scow and our arrays. And that's, that's the reason why I think there may be some truth. And I, I know, I know this. People that knew Truman Bathroom, even if they didn't fully accept it, they felt that he was totally sincere in this. And, uh, you know, they, they thought maybe he had, you know, hallucinated this, but he was sincere. Mm-hmm. But considering the gold medallion and the lady that looked like our arranged and, and, and so on, you know, it really makes you wonder if maybe the, the seemingly absurd was a reality. That's an amazing story. Uh, the only thing I was wondering while you were doing this is, one, I wish I could have met her, and two, maybe she was somebody that was pulling something over on bathroom. I kind of doubt it. Um, this this guy, now I didn't, I, didn't mean, I didn't ask to, you know, I didn't want to bother him. He's a businessman in Phoenix. Right. But uh, uh, Jay had talked at a link to him and was a, a close friend of his, and uh, he was totally convinced, and I took his conviction because of his feelings about this woman to be good enough in the first place. Okay. Keep in mind that uh, although he had told this, he, he never would have expected the guy who made it to, to be present at his talk. And uh, Truman was totally shocked, and uh, and so since there was there was nothing intrinsic in this gold item that uh, would uh, would tend to would be part of a hoax, or he, you know, Truman Bethlehem could have known this man was going to be there, and it would confirm it in that man's mind. Right. Uh, but to the rest of the world, you know, it would never have gotten him anywhere without this man involved. And uh, I, I think that uh, I don't know. I think sometimes. The UFO reality is a little bit beyond what our logical minds can conceive of. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that, uh, as Sir Arthur Eddington said, and you might say this of UFOs, he said, uh, the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, it is stranger than we can imagine. And I think that uh, after all these years of using instruments to objectively measure and, and record UFOs, I, I think really that there's some truth in that related to the UFOs. That's a great story, and you know what? I I believe I agree with you on a lot of that, just stranger than we can imagine, and people still have certain ideas which have been inculcated in them. They can't really get outside of them to look at things in a different way. I've never been able to get a copy of your book, of Look Up, the book you wrote with your brother. Um, yes. Is there any way you could describe that for people and what your thinking was at the time? Yes. Yes, this was our thinking at the time that that book was done. It was it was uh, it was published in in uh, nineteen seventy six or seventy seven. It was before Adamski confessed and so forth to us. And uh, uh, we had had some truly remarkable experiences with UFOs. Uh, the first one had been uh, Rex was a disbeliever until uh, I went down with uh, our mutual friend from high school, John McCoy. We had a, a, a UFO organization we called the Carpenter Pretty Flying Saucer Research Society. It wasn't; uh, it was still kosher to call them flying saucers back in the fifties. Yeah. And uh, uh, we had gone down to Brownsville. There was a group down there, the Brownsville Flying Saucer Research Society. Uh, I think they called themselves, and we had met with them, and we went out to Padre Island, and we had a. A, uh, we, we, under the influence of Adamski's teachings that these beings were telepathic, we decided to try telepathy. And, uh-huh. uh, we were, there were eight of us. And these were college age and high school age, all of us. And, uh, 
we were all males, and uh, so we we tried this uh, for a while, and suddenly there appeared over the Gulf of Mexico a uh, incredible looked like a ball of, of a brilliant ball of cotton or fuzz glowing. And it, it was moving horizontally, but on a sine wave path. In other words, it's oscillating up and down as it's moving uh, to our left. Now, that uh, is, of course, a typical thing that we see in UFOs. Now, I don't agree with Coral Lorenzen said when you see UFOs doing that, it merely would indicate that they have sloppy servos. <laughs> no, uh, I believe that this has to do with the oscillation of a, a G-like field that warps light around them, a gravity-like field that warps light. And as this field is spinning or oscillating or something that you're actually having the image of it kind of pulled up and down. It makes it look like they have sloppy servos. But in any case, we were in awe, and then it, it vanished, and we knew it wasn't a meteor. It was not on a horizontal course, but it was also that in that sine wave path, and it also didn't look like a meteor. It looked, uh, well, like a glowing, brightly glowing ball of cotton fuzz. And uh, then, so we tried some more to, to concentrate, and uh, some some people had driven down the beach, uh, and stopped right by us to surf fish. And uh, we went up to them, stupid kids we were, <laughs> and we said to them, uh, hey, uh, we are engaged in some scientific experiments here tonight that might be dangerous to you. <laughs> so, you, you know, if you want to be completely safe, we suggest you move at least a mile away up or down the beach. Well, what did they do? Of course, <laughs> they turned around and went back south and, went across and called the state police. <laughs> and uh, But before the state police got there, a dome disc started approaching us from over the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, yeah, there, then all of a sudden it would stop and, and go back over the Gulf of Mexico when cars were coming down the beach. And when cars would get out of the way, they were out of, I guess, eyesight or something, uh, it would come back on up closer to us. And... Uh, <clears throat> But at one point, a car started coming, and it didn't go away. It backed off a little bit and hovered there. And um, this car came closer, and I said, uh-oh, guys, I've got a feeling this is the cops. <laughs> well, it was. It was the State Highway Patrol car, and uh, State Highway Patrolman uh, Don Hoyd and his father, a Deputy Sheriff Ray Hoyd, and another Deputy Sheriff Steve Woods were in the car. And... Uh, they had their eyes on us, you know. They didn't know we were about to set off a bomb or, or something yeah. dangerous. They were all, they yeah. weren't watching this guy, they were watching us. Uh -huh. And I went over to the side where the, the state policeman was driving, and uh, he put his window down. He said, what are you boys doing out here this time of night? And I said, well, sir, uh, we came out here to try to contact flying saucers. And, in fact, if you, if you want to get out of the car and look up above, up there in the sky, you'll see one hovering there right now. <laughs> we succeeded, and they jumped out of the car. And uh, oh boy, he he wanted to, as he said, get the hell out of there. <laughs> but his 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 father, who had been, and he he said he had been in, I think he called it G two. I think it was supposed to be Army Intelligence. He said that he had been shown some photographs in G two or whatever it was in Army Intelligence that indicated to him that these things are alien vehicles. So we didn't press him to go into detail. We didn't feel we were in a position to press the officers at that point. Right. And uh, and so he was quite enthusiastic, but his son wanted to get out of there, and uh, Steve Woods was getting pretty upset, too. They were afraid this thing was going to come closer. I thank God it didn't, because uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the officer hadn't dirtied his pants, because he was pretty freaked out. And so eventually he talked to his son, I mean his father, I'm sorry, to, into getting back into the car along with Steve Woods, and 
and man, they 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 didn't burn rubber, but they they threw sand off down the beach as they headed south at high speed. But later the next year in, in June, I got up the guts to contact them, and uh, and uh, the state police officer, afraid of offending his uh, superiors, uh, didn't want to sign an affidavit. They let me take picture of him along with his father, who handing me an affidavit which he signed, attesting to. Uh, the experience on Padre Allen, as did Steve Woods, the, the other deputy sheriff. So in Fate Magazine in the May issue of 1956, uh, uh, it was published. I had written it when I was 16, and uh, and I referred to it in the Damskin context of, of contact. And believe it or not, here's a well-documented case in which actually we even succeeded in, in getting one, um, not very good, but, but photograph of it. Uh, and here... If you look in the UFO literature of all the, the uh, well, there, there are catalogs of sightings for the various years, and there, there are even sighting maps, you'll find that one has been completely censored. Uh, it's, I think it was the old uh, NICAP kind of mentality that anybody claims that they had any psychic, you know, contact with uh, uh, aliens were, you know, that it was it was fiction. But I don't know how they would explain the, the police officers and the affidavits and and so on. But anyway, that, that was published there, and it uh, it led uh, Greg to something really interesting happened. Uh, the son of a retired Air Force, uh, of, in fact, a retired Air Force general, who was living, uh, he was living with his parents in San Antonio, contacted us as a result of the magazine article in Fate Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came down, we got to know him pretty well, and he visited several times, and, uh, you know, of course, we preached the Adamski Doctrine to him of good space brothers. Well, um, later that summer of 56, uh, he had to go out to a, he, he went out to a family, uh, gathering a family reunion or something out in New Mexico, and uh, he was driving his uh, car, car, full car made in England, beautiful curved front fenders that curved down the back into the running board and the back fender, and uh, expensive little car, I think, and uh, his father had plenty of money, being a general, and uh, uh, but he was driving along one day out there, and when well, he called me, he called me from San Antonio when he got back, and he said, Ray, I don't know about these friendly space brothers of, of, of Darts and Amskis and this, this contact business. He said, I don't think these are good. And I said, why? He said, well, let me tell you what happened. I was driving along, he said, and this damn disc with a dome was suddenly right in front of my car. And he said, the next thing I knew... It was late in the day, and he said, I was on the road, I didn't know where I was, and the car had been dropped down on the rocks, and my beautiful right front fender had been all banged up with the rocks, and uh, and he said, I, 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 you know, I, I managed to get it back onto the highway and, and go far enough that I found a place, found out, you know, where I was and, and, and got back to where I was staying, but he said, he said, I, I don't understand that kind of thing in the context of of friendly Venusians and, and things like this. He said, there was nothing friendly about it. He said, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to the, the hours that I was missing. But he said, he said, you come up here to San Antonio and see my car. And so Rex and I drove up to San Antonio, and sure enough, his fender was all beat up. He could see where it had been dropped down the rocks, and rocks had punched through that uh, fender and, and running board uh, when it was dropped down upon them. And so here is a an abduction uh, that was described to us in 1956, well before the the bed in Bony Hill affair. How did he get his car off the rocks? Uh, he he backed it off. 
the fact that I now understand this is a little sports car. I suspect I don't remember the details, but I, I would suspect that he he rocked the 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 front of it till he got it if it was high enough that his that his you know his wheels. Of course, all he had to have was his back wheels. Right. On they had you know rear drive at that time, and uh, all he had to have was his back wheels, and it was the front fender and just the front of the running board that was dented. So. If he had his back wheels on the ground, as, as I would guess he was, because I didn't see any dents back there, that must be, uh, I would guess, but he could have rocked it or lifted it even possibly, uh, uh, getting back behind it kind of backward and putting all of his knee and, you know, thigh muscles into it. He might have been able to get it off rocks if it was hung. But I know where the damage was there. Uh-huh. And he was telling us something that we, of course, it didn't compute with us. I mean, right. yeah. I mean, we just, you, we, we couldn't believe it. Yeah, well, I mean, he seemed totally sincere, but you know we had never heard of abductions. Uh huh. Well, yeah, people have uh, obviously you know people have gone back in time and uh, gotten accounts of people with uh, basically the same kind of or similar abduction experiences that the, to those people reporting you know after it became a craze in the late seventies, uh, early eighties. Right. Yes. Yeah, that, that that's right, and I think that there were you know just a lot of people. Uh, Abducted, but after all, flying saucers were themselves controversial enough. But to, you know, talk about missing time and 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 things like that uh, back then, I, I think uh, Betty and Barney Hill were were pretty brave to have uh, to have let this this story get out. In fact, even in the, in the early, I guess it was sixty one when that came out, and with John G. Fuller uh, publishing it. Yeah. I think it happened in 61, and the story was published uh, in 65 or 6. Uh, yeah, 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 I think you're right, yeah, because I remember I was I was living in Phoenix, and it was later. Uh, I had uh, been aware of John Fuller and some of his activity, but then finally uh-huh. he came out with, uh, I corresponded with him, and finally he came out with this. He, he had gotten in a big argument with Phil Class, and I got in an argument with Phil Class, too. <laughs> and and uh, so I, you know, I knew John for correspondence, and then he came out with this, and it, yeah, it was later, that's right. We're talking with Ray Stanford, who's been involved with the UFO subject for longer than any of you listening have. And uh, we're talking about the contactees and early days of ufology, UFO phenomenon. Uh, Ray, do you want to take a break? You just want to keep going? Oh, um, we, we can keep going for it. I'm concerned. Okay. This is not a commercial radio or Internet station, so we don't really have to take a break or have a commercial or anything like that. If people want to call in at some point, I will announce the number here probably towards in the last half hour. This is Kill Radio, and we're here with Ray Stanford on Radio Mysterioso, so we'll just continue. Uh, you said earlier in the interview that you weren't really involved with NICAP, uh, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, but that you had done some work with them, and I guess specifically on the Socorro case, and your, your book called Socorro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry came out in 1975, I believe. Yes. 76, I believe. 76, okay. Could you talk about that case a little bit for people that, you know, I guess you can describe her for people who don't know, but also uh, your take on it and what happened, because uh, some of the things that happened were not too many people know about and uh, have a bearing on the case even now. Okay. Uh, yeah, in fact, the Sakura event was so convincing to me, and con- it was, in fact, the Sakura event, I think, that pretty well convinced Heineck that he better straighten out, quit doing the Air Force line and take this whole thing seriously. Uh, now, as it happened, uh, I didn't know you know, the next day after it ha- happened on, on Friday, uh, April 24, 1964, but uh, it was on Sunday that I got a call from a from a friend in Texas, and he said, my gosh, Ray, he said, I thought you, I want to make sure you you get over, and I thought you, I probably wouldn't get you, and you'd be over in Socorro investigating that landing that police officer witnessed, and uh, I said, I don't know anything about it, and uh, 
so he told me about it, and I said, gee, I've got to get over to Socorro. So uh, uh, I got over there, uh, I forget what day it was, to check the book. It was uh, it was probably the 26th. And uh, as I was uh, driving into town through the, the highlands of uh, the San Augustine, the plain of San Augustine, west of Socorro, where the very large array of radio telescopes is now, um, I heard uh, pick up the broadcast from Socorro, and it said that uh, Dr. Jail and Hunnick there to investigate the case for the Air Force had arrived uh, in the afternoon and was having a meeting with Lonnie Zamora. In fact, when I arrived at the police station, uh, he was then talking to Zamora, so I didn't get a chance to talk to Zamora uh, right away. But um, uh, the next um, morning, of, uh, I, I forget the, the exact timing on this, but uh, I was at the police. I talked extensively to different police officers that had heard the radio call, and I talked to uh, uh, officers that had uh, Dr. Um, I'm sorry, not Dr. Uh, Sergeant Sam Chavez, uh, who had, I think he was the first uh, policeman to arrive, a state policeman. And uh, uh, and by the way, uh, uh, he never wanted to get into it or let people know, but policemen told me that Chavez actually saw the object going away at high speed, rather quite vertically in the sky after it had gone horizontally to the Perlite Mill on Highway 60 west of the landing site and that he had actually seen it in the sky but uh, uh, he was of the he just didn't believe in in ufos as aliens in in source he believed that there had probably been a secret uh, government device had landed there and he he uh you know didn't want to talk about it or to say anything that would help confirm more that it was there for fear of giving away something the government might not want but uh, he completely overlooked the fact that zamora as he told me explicitly, and I questioned carefully on this, uh, Zamora said that the, he saw two figures in white coveralls, and that, uh, and uh, I said, and what size were they? And he said, well, he said, it's funny because he said, you know, they looked like little little kids, about little boys, about ten years old in white coveralls. He said they weren't. He said, I know where the heads of them came on that creosote bush by the northwest landing gear, and he said their heads and he discussed it when Heineck and I were there together with him and, and Sam Chavez and he said their heads only came right about to here and he said you can see I mean this this is like a little 10 year old boy he said it's not an adult height he said I don't know I don't know what they were or why you know he said I can't conceive of this thing being piloted by kids so yeah and, and anyway later now Heineck was there and uh and uh, I took pictures and Heineck uh, said oh I'd like to collect some samples we found that there were papers around the uh, ravine, old papers and pieces of cardboard lying around the ravine that uh, had some odd uh, scotch marks on them, and Heineck wanted to collect them and some of the, the burned creosote bush uh, branches and, and, and leaves, and he didn't have any containers, but I had brought a whole small box of them, the type you can write the data on the, the lid and the, or the side of them, and uh, and so I provided the containers for Heineck to, Heine to collect the evidence for the Air Force, and uh, uh, Heineck you know, seemed to be a bit absent-minded. Uh, for example, at one point, we're there at the landing site, and uh, uh, Zamora, for the first time, noticed it. He said, oh, gosh, he said, look here. Uh, and there was a, a uh, volcanic rock at the edge of the northwest landing gear imprint. And he said, look here, it looks like that this rock was was chipped off when the landing gear came down. Well, immediately, my wheels were turning, and I thought, my gosh, that's a volcanic rock. It has crystals that if a metal landing gear scraped on it, it should scrape metal into it. Right. Heineck said nothing. He wasn't thinking. 
And he said nothing. And so I kept my mouth shut because I knew that in a few minutes we were going to be heading off to the motel in Socorro for the, the news conference, the media conference. And uh, after it, I would return and get the rock and see if it had metal scraped onto it. And uh, so we had the news conference, and Heineck was, you know, he was playing the Air Force game. And uh, and as I described in the book, pussyfooting around, I mean, he, for example, when uh, Walter Schrode of, uh, of the radio station there in Socorro, the only one in Socorro at least at that time, uh, pressed him about the, the little men beside him. He said, well, now, tomorrow didn't say anything to me. Well, he didn't say anything about any little men. He mentioned uh, some white coveralls, you know, kind of like they were hanging there on a uh, clothesline or something. <laughs> and uh, later, Heineck, uh, I let Heineck read the manuscript for my Socorro book before yeah. it was published. Uh -huh. And he came, uh, one of the various trips that he made to visit our project in Austin for, for hard data monitoring and filming tracking of UFOs, uh, he said, Ray, you gave me exactly what I had coming to me in that book. Because he said, I, you know, I was just going to airport line. He said, I really had it coming, and you gave it to me, and congratulations. He said, really, I'm glad you did. Well, he, he carried through with that, I found out, uh, because it turns out that he actually donated a copy of my book to the technical library of the uh, Johnson Means uh, Manned Space Flight Center in Houston. And uh, not only that, but he brought two flight experienced, space flight experienced astronauts over to, uh, to talk to, uh, to me in my, uh, off, in our offices there. Uh, we had offices in town. We had the 400 acre lab site with the two buildings out, uh, northwest of Austin off what's called Valenti Road. And, yeah, we'll talk uh, about anyway, that in a, in a uh, little bit. Uh, subsequently, uh, I had been, I had called, uh, Dick Hall of NICAP and he had authorized me to investigate the case for NICAP. APRO had already been there, Coral and Jim Lorenzen, and, uh, I didn't want NICAP to be left out, so I did, uh, my investigation and reported to, to them. Now, I, and I told Richard that there was metal scraped on the rock, and this has been a big contention with Richard. He, he set it up for me to, to take this material to Goddard Space Flight Center, uh, to a Dr. Henry Frankel, who was head of the Space Materials Division, and, uh, he said that he would be quite willing to, to analyze this, so, I took it in the summer of uh, 64 over to, um, uh, uh, came to D.C., and uh, and uh, he took us out to, there was, and, and, and let me mention that uh, uh, another fellow with well-known name with NICAP, uh, Walter Wetwood, was there, and uh, there was a friend of mine from Phoenix there with me, too, and he took, we all went in, in one car, and we went over to Goddard, and uh, and uh, I first asked Dr. Frankel, I said, I want you to promise me. I said, you're not going to have this to analyze unless you promise me that if it appears to be strange in any way that might lend itself to the interpretation that it might have come from an extraterrestrial source, uh, you would verify that, be willing to, if necessary, testify in congressional hearing. He said, I would. He said, if it's that interesting, he said, I certainly would. So I, I took him at his word. And... Uh, uh, so we went to the lab and, and put this contrary to what uh, it says in uh, Jerry Clark's book, uh, uh, in his uh, Encyclopedia of UFOs. He says in there, and I suspect he got this misinformation from Paul, I'm not sure, but he says that uh, that we put it under an electron microscope. That is not true. It was a simple binocular optical microscope, mm -hmm. and uh, which helps you, you know, see it in a three-dimensional way. You're, you're, you then perceive it as a three-dimensional object uh, with the metal scraped onto it, and you could clearly see 
Uh, now, the best liver had been knocked off accidentally when a, a friend of mine had, had uh, handled it and knocked it off in the grass in Phoenix. We used a magnet to try to find a powerful magnet, but we couldn't find the sliver. But there was still some pretty good little spots of the metal scraped onto the rock. And, and uh, Dr. Frankel and the other people that uh, were there, we all agreed that uh, it looked like, in fact, that the metal had had almost become in a plastic state when it was scraped off. In other words, it's as if it had been heated by this exhaust, uh, this brilliant exhaust that had been involved in the landing and the takeoff. Of course, it would have only been involved in the landing at that point. And uh, in any way, we just conjectured, because the looks of it, that it, that it looked like it might have been in a slightly uh, flexible state when it was scraped over there. But anyway, they asked us to go over to the cafeteria while they scraped all this stuff off. And, uh, and I said, wait now, don't scrape it all off. I said, you've got to leave half for me. And he said, okay, we leave half for you. And we went over to the Goddard cafeteria and had lunch. And when we got back, uh, the guy had it there sealed up in his box. And I thought, well, that's odd. Why didn't he show it to us? So I opened the box right in front of this one, Dr. Frankel. He had disappeared at that point. And it was one of his assistants. And uh, much to my dismay, every speck of metal had been removed. Every speck. And I said, wait a minute. I said, you promised me the will. You know, we don't make sure we have enough to analyze. I said, a promise is a promise. I said, I'm disgusted and all was me. You know, don't, don't. Don't be nasty about this. No, um, we can't afford to upset these people. Well, <laughs> maybe they couldn't afford to upset me. But in any case, <laughs> uh, Dr. Frankel had told me that uh, they would, that weekend, would put it under a uh, under radiation in order to do X-ray diffraction studies of it to determine what the metal was. Right. And he said that he would have the results that uh, they would take it out on Monday and uh, would, you know, read the uh, uh, the... Uh, the film patterns, the patterns, uh, the, the, the the crystalline structure of uh, of the thing you're testing will emit radiation in response to the radiation that is absorbed in in ways that are characteristic whereby they can identify what was emitting the uh, the re-emitting yeah. the radiation. An early mass and, spectrometer. Uh, so he said, "Now call me on Wednesday morning." So uh, I called him on Wednesday morning, and he said, "Well, Ray," he said. Uh, I, I have something that I think will make you rather happy. He said, uh, you know, we put it under radiation, and he says, as it turns out, it is an alloy. It's an alloy of zinc and iron. But he said, the thing that I think will make you happy is that we have checked the list of all alloys produced on this earth. And he said, there is no alloy of that type produced. And he said, he said it doesn't prove the extraterrestrial interpretation, but it lends itself to that interpretation since it doesn't seem to be produced according to all the charts we have. And I thought that was quite uh, exciting. And uh, he said there are a few little odd traces of other elements there that we're not getting a good uh, uh, X-ray pattern out of. And he said, so we're going to do some other tests and just to determine the, the trace elements that are in it. And he said, you know, if you call me back in the, the data in the book about how long it was and so, so forth, I forget, it's been so long ago, 64, but, uh, and I'm 70.5 years old, but uh, it's all there in the book. And uh, finally, when I called back, he would never talk to me. I couldn't get him. All kinds of excuses, one of which was that he was in a high-level security conference. And uh, But finally, one of his assistants called me and said, oh, it all been a mistake. It all been uh, just uh, quartz crystal silica dioxide refracting light in a pseudo-metallic way. Well... I suspicioned immediately that that was a cover-up because the night after we had taken this to Goddard Space Flight Center and they had taken it all, uh, my friend from Phoenix and I had dinner with um, 
an officer, uh, a, a high officer in the military, and uh, he chided me. He, he said, uh, you know, he said, you're, you're a damn fool for taking it over there, but I'm glad you did because, you know, you didn't have any business with this stuff. And, and, and basically he said, well, he said, uh, they cannot release this, the, the true finding of it. They're going to have to cover it up. He said, you're never going to see your, your medal again, and, and, and uh, there will have to be a cover-up because they have to tell. They, they can't just do that in shop. They, they have to tell, you know, the authorities about this. And I said, well, I hope you're wrong. And um, so, but as soon as, as Frankel's assistant had told me this was all a mistake, I picked up the phone and called uh, uh, the head of the Department of Chemistry at Delmar College in Parkers Christie. And uh, he's named in the book and so on and so forth. And he said, well, he said, Mr. And I didn't tell him this was a UFO case because I wanted an objective uh, answer. I, I just said, uh, you know, there was some metal that was scraped on something we had analyzed, and they did X-ray diffraction and said it was a zinc iron alloy. Came back two days later, said all a mistake. I had just been towards crystal glinting and light. And he said, well, he said, you know, I don't know if these guys are crazy or, you know, have they been smoking something or what, but he said that's <laughs> impossible. He said, with X-ray diffraction, you have a specific... Uh, uh, diffraction pattern, and he said uh, the the pattern from zinc and iron is quite distinctive. It's as distinctive as a fingerprint. It cannot be a mistake. He said you can you might make that mistake looking at quartz crystals just as an optical analysis. But he said you're not talking about an optical analysis. You're talking about X-ray diffraction. And he said so. You know I wouldn't accept that as as valid at all. I suddenly asked several professional metallurgist about this. So they all concurred that the mistake could not have occurred. And Alan Heineck told me, and I quoted it in the book, and which he approved of and gave a copy to, as I said, to the Nancy Space Flight Houston. He said, Ray, my recommendation to you is that you accept the initial information that Dr. Frankel gave you and uh, forget the disclaimer, which is it's what I did. But uh, I... Uh, uh, Dick Hall got very upset because when my book came out, I told the whole story. And uh, I understand this was embarrassing to him, surely, because he had, you know, he was the one that invited me to go out there. And if there was a cover-up, I guess he may have felt a little guilty. But uh, but he published in, in their, the Nightcap Bulletin that it was all a mistake and it was just silica dioxide and nothing to it. And uh, he published their story whole cloth uh, without consulting a metallurgist. Are an analytical chemist, and uh, about the whether this mistake was possible. And I have asked him in public. I've asked him on UFO updates again and again. Uh, if you consulted an expert, tell us who is his name, as I did, and tell us whether it's true, whether this could happen according to what you were told. And he has never answered that because he he hasn't. He just uh, pushed Frankel's explanation. He he would have to answer why he did, but he has just you know said every negative thing he can about me since then. Uh, apparently because of that, I can't think of any other reason, because I always liked Dick over the years, or I wouldn't have called him up and and, uh, and offered, you know, to, to bring this for analysis and uh, to, to do it for NICAP in the first place. And uh, when I moved here about in 19, early 1985, I mean, my wife and I invited him out to dinner, and Dick has always been a friend, but he just, uh, this has made him a sore spot, and uh, he claims that, you know, it was all a mistake. That's his right to claim it if he likes, but I investigated the possibility of the mistake and found out from every, you know, physical scientist that I asked that the mistake was not possible. Uh -huh. So that's why I called it the Coral Saucer in the Pentagon Pantry. I felt there was a cover-up. 
this was only because of your efforts to go and get this analyzed with the approval of it. Who put you in touch with the, the Goddard people? Was it who put you in touch with the Goddard uh, Center people? Oh, that was that was Dick Hall. Oh, Mike okay, Cap. okay. Cap, yes, All right. Dick Hall. I've got the correspondence and so on and so forth. And uh, he had a couple of places he said, you know, we go with it. And I said, well, you know, we can go with with, with Goddard. And uh, so he took me over there, you know, and introduced me to Doctor Frankel. And, and you know, he and, and Walter Webb were witnesses of this. And my friend Bob McGarry and I from Phoenix were were there, and we saw the, the whole thing. I wonder, uh, Greg, if if uh, maybe we should talk then about. The serious research in, into UFOs that uh, that my organization and I have been involved with since uh, very actively since 1973. Yes, well, that's the next thing I was going to bring up. Besides the uh, AUM stuff, which I guess morphed into the Project Starlight uh, Actually, research uh, the that you did. The understanding of man, uh, which we call AUM, was uh, an organization that was. Uh, founded around trying to understand the limits and the non-limits of the human mind. And I was working, I had, uh, in 1960, I guess, or early 61, probably, yeah, I had, uh, had during a meditation group at a, at a chiropractor's office, I had fallen into an altered state, and, and some information started being given to me. Uh, one of the persons uh, was addressed there, and information was given that, that he knew absolutely that I had no knowledge of. And uh, and they were really impressed, and so they kept encouraging me to give psychic readings. Well, eventually, I, 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 uh, the most I ever took for a psychic reading was $30. But I didn't even like that because, you know, you want to feel that your motivation is strictly helping the person. And uh, so I finally, we finally got an organization together. And uh, in 1970, it was incorporated in Austin as Association for Understanding of Man. And we tried to, we published the readings so that people could study them and make their own conclusions. But if one reads my 1974 in-depth interview in uh, what was then called, uh, well, it was Psychic Magazine, but I think it had changed its name. I forget what it was called. Uh, 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 James Grayson Bolin, uh, who was he was an excellent man, an excellent editor, I had uh, it was, he edited it. He was the editor of the magazine, and uh, uh, there was an extensive interview with me. And uh, as anyone will read in there, you know, that people, uh, Dick Hall, for example, has claimed that, oh, man, that I, I believe that space visitors were talking through me and, and that uh, ascended masters and so on and so forth. I never believed any of that. I always tried to keep a completely open mind, but I, as I said in the interview, frankly, these could easily be just my unconscious trying to attract attention to the ideas it is espousing and therefore creates these personalities in order to to make it more juicy or interesting to the human minds of the, the, the diverse people that are around. And uh, uh, that is the position that I had uh, taken uh, all along in these experiences. And anybody who knows me and who was there at the readings knows that that's the case, but the association published these, and uh, we even one of the things that most people don't realize is that the physics department of a of a substantial and and, and uh, well known university actually financed a reading through me. They pa paid the association. I don't know what they paid them, but uh, to have me do a reading on the nature of uh, of matter, energy, space, and time, and an incredible reading was published in the Journal of Association for Understanding of Man describing something, and I'll have to say that, uh, you know, most of the stuff I listen to, and, I, you know, I, I could kind of believe that it was, uh, you know, my unconscious kind of masquerading and, you know, 
building up this stuff. Maybe well, certainly with psychic stuff coming through too, because there was a lot of stuff that I had no knowledge of that came through that would confirm that medical readings and stuff like this. Uh-huh. But uh, in this reading, it's, I, I get the feeling as I read it that it's way beyond me. Uh, I don't know, you know, what part of my mind or the universal mind, if there is such a thing, uh, or where it came from. But uh, I, I do know that uh, that the head of the, the physics department there, uh, Dr. James Ray, was quite pleased with this. And he told me that, in fact, that what had been described there was sounded very much like something about that a physicist, uh, I believe his name was James Gott, G-O-T-T, uh, uh, some something that he had, uh, some, something he had come up with mathematically as a theoretical physicist called uh, inverse time space. And I had some most remarkable uh, physical phenomena experiences, a series of them uh, in the, the months after that, that appeared to be somebody was trying to confirm to me uh, that uh, that UFOs somehow use this property of inverse time space. Now, the as as uh, as I understand it, uh, if you can put it into words, uh, inverse time space is a time space in which what, we're here and and time marches inexorably on while we're you know caught in space. But in inverse time space, space marches inexorably on, and. Uh, you know, I don't pretend to understand that. Apparently, it's something you have to, I guess, understand mathematically. But supposedly, there was a great commonality between what my reading was describing and and God's inverse time space. And uh, there was a lot of uh, interesting uh, things that were confirmed medically and uh, in other technical matters in the readings that uh, that certainly I had no knowledge of. And uh, we had people that we had a fellow that had since World War Two uh, post traumatic epilepsy post-traumatic epilepsy severe he'd be driving in phoenix traffic and totally blackout now that that gets really dangerous for other people and himself too and uh lo and behold a physical reading that i gave told him to do something quite crazy i didn't know at the time that the strobes could make people have uh, epileptic seizures but it it told him to get a strobe that could be adjusted in frequency, then it told him exact frequencies. He was to stare at this thing a certain amount of time, modify his diet a bit, and that he would be he would completely cure his tendency to have these seizures, which he'd been having ever since World War II, and uh, something had happened to him in one of the Pacific Islands, a bomb or something, and it, I guess scrambled his brains or whatever, using a figure of speech there. And uh, sure enough, he did it, and uh, absolutely, uh, he was completely cured. He never had another seizure. Uh, one woman uh, was cured of uh, cancer of the thyroid. And there were a lot of other wonderful things. A, a young child was cured of leg birthies disease. And, uh, oh, there were, there were things that certainly I would never have even uh, said in readings uh, if I had been conscious. Uh, they were said to people that I had never met and that I knew nothing about. And, uh, you know, you sometimes wonder if somebody's going <laughs> to send you a bomb or something because uh, uh, things that are said. But uh, I was asked to give a reading for a a, a medical doctor who was a specialist. He was a, a, a pediatrician. And uh, uh, they they gave his name and where he lived and his birth date. It was required by my unconscious to, to latch on to the person. And uh, this was supposed to be a self-help reading. And... Uh, and immediately, the, uh, the the source of the readings, which said it was my unconscious and superconscious attuned with the conscious, uh, the unconscious and superconscious of whomever, uh, toward whomever it was directed by suggestion, uh, said, we're not going to give anything 
to their sanity. Unless the sentence he promises here and now to quit molesting little boys that come into his office for medical treatment. <laughs> and it was sent to him. It was sent to him, and he said, he said, you don't know how thankful I am for this. He said, I confess. I confess. And he said, I am going to change my life. So uh, this is something, of course, as you would guess, <laughs> I would have never given for the guy. I would never, I've never said it to him. You know, but uh, uh-huh. there were a lot of amazing things like that that just just uh, uh, were quite astonishing. But but uh, Greg, the reason I quit giving readings, one of the major reasons, was that one I think people should learn to use their own minds, their conscious, their unconscious, their superconscious, if there, if there is such a thing, and quit depending on other people. You know, people tend to grab onto other people's psychics and ask them for readings. That way, they can pass the buck. If it doesn't work out, they can blame somebody else's to themselves. But when you become mature enough to make decisions by your own inner guidance, then you've got nobody to blame but yourself. There's growth in that when you realize. But uh, I, I got tired of that. I got tired of people tending to believe everything that was said through my readings, even if it was something that could not be confirmed objectively. People believed it. There were people thumped my readings like a Bible. And I finally had a beautiful, beautiful dream that told me in a beautiful and symbolic form, I I wept when I woke up from the dream, that I must stop giving readings, not only for my own spiritual good, but for the good of people that tended to follow this type of thing. And it was tough. I mean, you know, I was employed the Association for the Understanding of Man, uh, and uh, I was never paid a lot to give readings. My salary is documented. I mean, I was paid, I think it was the maximum was right under or right at $1,000 a month was all I ever got. And, uh, but I had to do it. I had to, to stop doing it because I knew it was the thing that my inner self had, had told me. And so I stopped. And then, but the association had been the financier of the Project Starlight International as a subsidiary of it, which, uh, we put together over $2 million worth of instruments, systems, and, 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 uh, facilities to track these years, to film these UFOs, to record light spectra, to record sound highly directionally of them to record uh, uh, the extreme low frequency magnetic field of them to record gravity waves changes in acceleration due to gravity from them and we succeeded in recording all these things in both daylight and nocturnal encounters with UFOs and this had been financed by the Associate for the Understanding of Man but it happened and I'm sure that some listeners will recognize this uh, some of the people in the organization got I'll put it in quotes saved they uh to quote them, found Jesus and repented of their sins for being involved with satanic things like uh, psychic ability and UFOs. Mm -hmm. And so they announced to me that uh, I was no longer part of the organization. And uh, so what I did, I I took a loan and uh, bought all the best and most important equipment and moved the operation up here to Maryland, where I suddenly married a lady that had been a member of the Association of the Understanding of Man, Sheila, and uh, we've been married now for 22 years. I'd gone through a divorce there with my wife, who's the mother of my three children, who are now adults. But anyway, that project was financed by the association, but once it was taken over by the fundamentalist mentality, they even wanted to burn the books that had published my reading. I said, my God, this is ridiculous. I said, sell it if you, you know, if you want money. Sell these things to Aerie. They'll be happy to sell them in the bookstore, which they did. Yeah. But they had thrown them in the, 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 the dumpster. They were going to be in a few hours, you know, carted off in the trash. And I said, this is ridiculous. So at least I, uh, <laughs> I saved the publications and got them out 
you know, to people that might want to study them. Yeah, what you were talking about, what you're referring to here in this transition is Project Starlight, which I also wanted to have you discuss, talk about what your methods were, how you came about uh, with your results, and what ultimately happened with those results and how they affected the UFO field, if it if they did. Yes. Uh, the uh, You say you'd like me to, to go in and discuss it and, and what we've gotten and achieved with that? Yeah, exactly. Um, what okay. what important uh, milestones you thought were achieved by Project Starlight? What what instruments you used, and um, how you went about your experiments, and what what ultimately you found, and how that, like I said, how that affected the study okay. of UFOs, if it the did. Details of, of these things that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just vaguely touch on here because that's all the time we will have is uh, will, we will be ultimately published. But uh, the orientation of myself in relationship to the the evidence that project has accumulated is research and development primarily. And uh, you will see that uh, what we've gotten would lend itself to research and development. Now, um, we put together, uh, for example, uh, well, you've seen the picture, and in fact, it was on the, uh, there was a picture of it and a link to information about it on, on your blurb that you put up on your uh, your blog uh, about uh, about me. Yeah. And uh, there was, uh, we had, for example, we had a uh, a very uh, good helium neon uh, video modulatable laser in parallel with a television camera and a 2,100 10 mm focal length uh, telescope with a, a, a video amplifier, a photo multiplier, and a video amplifier on the back of it. And it was primarily to test light bend. If you had, uh, for example, the UFO is not in the middle of the the, the video screen from the video camera, but yet the laser is reflecting off of it, it would indicate that the beam is being bent into it. We based this. Uh, idea upon the fact that in 1949 in Ohio, there had been a case, hundreds of people saw a UFO come over a church carnival was going on. They had a carbon arc big spotlight there, and, and somebody took a 16-millimeter movie, probably in Triax film, it was black and white, and uh, their frames were, when the beam gets angularly near the UFO, but pointing at it, it looks like it sucks it in. It just bends suddenly, and it goes right into the object suggesting dramatic light bend. So we wanted to test this. But as a, as a secondary, when you, when you invest the kind of money we did in that kind of expensive equipment, you want to enable it to do as much, get as much for your money as you can. So what we did, we had a, a, a TV driver which had pictures of UFOs that we thought to be authentic, and it showed, for example, one in the sky with us and the equipment and a, a, a wavy beam going toward the UFO and coming back toward us, indicating that if they received our modulated beam, assume they could decode televisions since they'd been around for a long time, and uh, then they could answer with a video modulated signal, and uh, although we never succeeded in, in getting an answer, but we never uh, we, we, I swept it over one time, and fortunately we have a photograph where I swept it over a UFO that had been and we had checked, this UFO hovered for ten minutes and finally approached us our area, and uh, we got uh, an exposure right as I was sweeping it, and we have proof that the laser, you can actually see where the laser would stop because of the moisture in the air, and where it stopped after we swept through it, you could draw a line between them, and you can see right where it reflects. You see this big reflection of the laser off the surface of the UFO. So I, I claim to be, and probably am, the first person to ever reflect a laser off a UFO. Fortunately, they didn't answer back with something <laughs> more powerful. We did wear white suits and use green goggles in case they should answer, even with a helium neon beam like we had, because <laughs> that could really uh, blind you. But uh, 
Uh, but in any case, um, we, we did succeed at least to that uh, limited extent. We didn't get to, to uh, get evidence of, of light bending with that, but we had a wonderful system and chart recorder uh, that would record simultaneously a uh, time signal from the Bureau of Standards, Fort Collins, record the output of our recording magnetometer that recorded in the extreme low frequency range of the magnetic field uh, with a bypass of 60 hertz so we didn't get to picking up, uh, you know, conventional electrical signals from right. alternating current. And uh, and it also recorded data from uh, the output of our, our signal uh, from our uh, recording gravimeter, which would uh, register changes in acceleration due to gravity, along with a calibration tone. And so um, we succeeded in, in, in using this quite successfully. Uh, we wouldn't have, I had not been an MG with Heine, and... Uh, uh, I was on there. They they showed their equipment and our mobile lab and so on and so forth. And and I told about how we could. We our mobile lab had an eighty gallon gas tank and how we could take off and go across country if we learned there was activity in a certain area. Well, it happened that there was a nice lady in Austin, Texas, that was uh, uh, she was um, listening. And when she heard this, she thought, "My gosh, I didn't realize this was going on here in Austin." And so she had a brother. They were both interested in UFOs because, uh, as a uh, little bitty kids, they apparently had been abducted. I won't go into the story, but they had apparently been abducted in broad daylight. And uh, it's a pretty evidential case, I think, from what I learned from her. And But her brother became interested, and he grew up to be a physical scientist working at the White Sands Proving Grounds when I had been on the Donahue Show. So she calls up her brother and says, hey, Guess what? There's this organization right here in Austin that has all this fancy equipment for monitoring UFOs. And he, she said, I didn't know that at all. He said, listen, if they've got that stuff, tell them they've got to sneak around the edge of White Sands. He said, for the last several weeks, these things have plagued us day and night, so much so that intelligence has put out a directive that everyone is to use every and any and every means at their disposal to get intelligence on these objects. And so I use that. I don't know exactly what is being done to get intelligence on them uh, other than what we're doing here. But uh, he said, uh, tell them to sneak around the periphery because I can guarantee them that if, if they spend any time here at all, they're going to see these things and get to use their instruments on them. Well, we headed out. And by golly, before we even got to White Sands, we were west of Plains, Texas in the afternoon, and we saw two incredible UFOs, and uh, we stopped and uh, got movie film of them in broad daylight. They, they, they would go along in what would suddenly reverse direction with visual instantaneity, and just recorded on movie film in daylight. And the moment these white objects, uh, would, the moment one of them would reverse direction, one movie frame only, it would turn brilliant red with streaks of red streaking out from it, and then it would... The next frame would be normal, but heading back the other way. And uh, when this happened, we had an audio analog coming out of our magnetometer, so we could hear an audio analog of the magnetic field that was being recorded in what's called an IRIG format, which is frequency modulation, inside on, on the tape in the machine when we were out in the field. We had it going through a chart recorder at our lab. And uh, sure enough, when these things, we, for example, there were two UFOs, and their their fields are constantly pulsating. So you would hear on the audio analog something like this. But I'm going <laughs> to do that now, and I'm going to show you what it sounds like, and we have graphs of this. When when one would instantly, here it is. So there would be 
would be this incredibly powerful pulse. Now, the interesting thing is, we were also recording at the same time WWVB binary time signal for Fort Collins, Colorado, which is below our horizon there in West Texas or New Mexico, where we also got the data. And uh, that means you depend upon the ionosphere to reflect that. But when the UFO evidently pulsed, according to magnetic theory, which we have very good evidence this is what's occurring, when the UFO pulses its strong magnetic field, this has got to jar the ion, and these guys were quite high. I think they were at 90,000 feet or more, and we were shooting on telephone lens. But they, when they pulse like that, it would apparently jar the ionosphere, and you see the, the signal from the Bureau of Standards at Fort Collins break up momentarily, and our, our reception drops down to almost nothing, and then comes back up after the strong pulse. So here we have a direct correlation showing ionospheric disturbance, uh, making radio reception from beyond the horizon interference. Uh, when the magnetic field, as actually recorded by us, pulls up, and when the object reverses direction, as recorded simultaneously on movie film. Now, in that case, we didn't get the gravity waves recorded because we got so excited when this happened and we jumped out of the car, we forgot to deploy the gravimeter sensor to take it out of the van. We got signals that they've got to be distorted being in the van. It, it has to be very stable, and it's on a 40-pound block of concrete and then covered against any wind, and we didn't do it at that time. We didn't get to do that until that night when we had incredible encounters on the edge of the White Sands Proving Ground, exactly as was promised us by the physical scientist who was working out there to his sister. Oh, these findings you're, dis you're describing, did you yeah. ever, you publicized them, I guess. Uh, what was the reaction? Uh, there was a little bit of it published in the, uh, the MUFON proceedings uh, in... Um, I guess it would be, let me, let me see here, I'm trying to pull it out as, as I talk to you. Uh, there was a, just a little bit of this published, and, uh, well, I can't tell you the, the issue. You know how it is when you're, you're looking for something and, yeah, yeah. and, and you're in a hurry. But, uh, but in any case, uh, it was the one at, at Clear Lake City, and uh, it would be uh, maybe 1980, I think. And, uh, but in, in any case, uh, we published a, a bit of the graphs from 